This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast with your hosts, Ray Herto from HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined by... Jeremiah O'Neill with Hazen O'Neill. And Renz Hayes from Hazen O'Neill. I, I thought, thought it was H&O. H&O. It's a story. I, I fall. Ooh. <laughs> Stereo corrections there. So are you Hazen O'Neill or H&O? We are currently rebranding as H&O Structural Engineering. And the point of that is to bring more focus to our organization and the people that make it what it is today and, and speaks to our results. So by way of background, the H and O, uh, Jeremiah O'Neill is the O and the Renz Hayes, who's joining us today. Just in case, you know. Just in case you can put it together. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Thanks and, for having us. Um, I guess this, the background is you guys got started. Uh, how? Tell us a little bit about your background. 20, July 2016. So about three years ago. Pretty much about the time I hired you for uh, 9 Jeffrey Street. I think maybe the day after. Okay, cool. You are structural engineers in the world of development and here in the city of Boston. Absolutely. So we were colleagues before that. We worked together for about five years in downtown Boston at a large engineering firm. We had talked throughout those years about uh, how we could collaborate and, and create an organization that uh, had, a, had a big client focus and they built a positive culture for our team to grow and prosper themselves. We're now... About to be 11 people? About to be 11 people. Is it safe to say that the engineering calculations are the easiest part of the business and that managing 11 people and hiring people comes with its own challenges? They both have their challenges. I think the reason we work together well, we kind of have both sides of that covered. We spent the first nine months without pursuing work. We spent that time getting ourselves in a position to grow an organization. We did everything with a bigger a bigger business in mind. And that's how we've got to where we are right now. From the second we started, we never had the intention of just building a business around the two of us. We always had the idea of building our business so that we could support large-scale developments, high-rise construction, and really reach out and build a national brand. So every decision that we built in the first year, in those first nine months, was focused solely on creating processes that would be scalable once we were successful in marketing our brand and developing um, our clients. So as of now, what are your, I mean, large-scale development versus small-scale development, what would you say your kind of bread and butter is? I would say an interesting part in the structural engineering world that we found is we found a nice pocket in the mid-rise development, I would call it, which is these uh, the multifamily boom, which is all your podium buildings in Boston, which is the one or two stories of composite steel or PT concrete, followed by four or five stories of wood. It's an extremely efficient way to build a residential building in an urban environment. And uh, we really found a pocket with our large-scale high-rise experience, we were comfortable at how it worked on a much bigger scale, and we were able to bring that, um, bring those processes and expectations. We bring clarity to responsibility throughout those buildings. And um, I, I would say largely in the engineering world, most of the firms are one to five people, or they're fairly large where you start to hit the 30, 50-person firms. So we found a nice pocket in the middle where we were ahead on technology. We were comfortable on large-scale developments. We were pushing the envelope to get to bigger stuff. And we found a real good uh, core group of architects and developers that were in a similar spot, and we're all looking to grow together. How has your team grown over time? How have you taken on new clients? Are you at, like How do you, have you originally started marketing yourselves? 
As far as growing our team, we look for like-minded people. The culture and the personality is very important to us. We kind of look at the engineering, although it's obviously important. Uh, it's kind of the commodity in the industry. There's complex engineering challenges that we have people that they can do that, but it's a non-starter for us if our people can't have a conversation with an architect, a developer, and see the bigger picture behind what we're doing. We ultimately design beams and columns to make a building stand up, but our value is way bigger than that. Uh, our value is in working with people like yourselves uh, up front to look if a development's viable, uh, what's the best way to tackle this, and the people we bring on are people that see that as well. You mentioned to work up front, see if a project is viable. So we've been looking at buildings early on and um, preliminary site walks before we've even put an offer in. And you guys have accompanied us on the walk. And I think something that our listeners might be interested in is what are some of the things that you look for uh, in terms of red flags? Let's use a hypothetical um, brick building in Boston. Brick building in Boston, say like a row house or your traditional brownstone. An interesting piece of those developments is that they are tied together laterally. So they resist seismic loads or wind loads together along the direction of the row house. So when you're looking to renovate or create a big opening in the rear wall for like an open patio to the garden area, you're going to pay a little bit of premium for that structure because we also have to design that with responsibility to resist the lateral system. Another thing to look out is for cobblestone or uh, fieldstone foundation walls. A lot of those are built on fieldstone foundations. They might be sitting on granite. Uh, so anytime you're changing the height of your basement, you got to consider underpinning. You got to pay attention to zone of influence on your footings next to the adjacent basement. So those are all things that you want to take into consideration when you're looking at your leasable or um, sellable square footage. So, so two things you just said there, underpinning, and I don't even remember bearing that. zone of influence. Yes, can you kind of similar? Can you talk about what those are? Absolutely. So if you want to change um, your basement height, often the first way people look to do is they try to go down with their basement floor. So what you run into is you're adjacent, like in Boston, where all the buildings are on top of each other. Um, you got to have an understanding of the level of the foundation in the basement of the property next to you because you do not want your footing above or below their foundation where you're adding pressure onto their building or the ladder. How would you know that you've negatively impacted somebody if, say, you buy a building and it's already done, right? Whether it's Hellsdale signs, like certain cracks, certain movements. I wouldn't say we see that often. The issue, someone else has done something and there's a problem. It's you get into a project thinking you're going to drop your basement three feet and it's I mean, anything's viable, but it's not economically viable. So say I buy a three-unit building. I want to duplex the first floor and basement. You know, I want to raise my ceiling height in my basement two to three feet. What's the process that I need to go through to figure that out? How do I figure out costs? What's, like, from a development standpoint, what are the actual steps that I need to take to do that work? Basements unfortunately are are tough because it's hard to see what's happening below the basement floor so the the best way to do it is have a test pit dug in the basement to understand where the bottom of footing is and then obviously get in touch with your neighbor your butter and understand how deep their basement is uh, those are two key 
points to understanding what you can and can't do. And ideally, your neighbor's basement is much deeper. Ideally, you're at the same level as where you want to be. Going deeper than their basement. I'm saying if they're deeper than you, you're not going to interrupt their bearing zone of influence. Correct. Yeah. So you want them to have a two-story deep basement, and you're just trying to add three feet. Correct. It's yep. difficult when they have a crawl space and, you and you're trying down. to dig out a 10-foot ceiling height for your basement. is going to be a challenge. Very often in Boston, we'll see you'll do a test bit and the foundation, the bottom of the foundation is right at the bottom of slab. So you can't go down anywhere. I mean, without underpinning. And if you're, if you're not attached to anybody, how far down could you go with an underpin? Can you go as far as you want? Is there a limit? We've gone down pretty far. Uh, We've dug out entire floors before. Yeah. I mean, really, it's all viable, yeah. but I mean, obviously, you need to know what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah, when you do that, that's going to be a, a part of the acquisition cost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we actually bought a building not too long ago, and we're still working on it right now. And it had a shared party wall. We thought there was at least something holding up in between, but it turns out there was not. And um, we've been working on putting a shared foundation wall. And when we put in that wall, when we went to the bottom of that footing there. We went down, I think it was like eight or 10 feet for that exact reason. We didn't want to be too high up. We also were taking into account the geotech report, which was telling us supposedly there was eight feet of unsuitable organics. So we kind of anticipated. Supposedly. supposedly. I believe, no, you, I believe you guys are working on that project true. with us. Right. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are all good discussions on what you can look at up front in a development but it goes beyond existing buildings are one thing. Obviously, when you're acquiring an existing building, if you're going to keep the building, that's one thing. If you're going to tear it down, well, uh, there's not much to look at, look at in the existing structure. But even a new build, understanding the parameters you have to work in, we feel it's extremely valuable to have us in that conversation off the bat. Let's just say you have... Uh, you've acquired or looking at acquiring a piece of property. Everybody's building four on one, five on one podium buildings. And some of these it's capped out for zoning reasons, or they don't want to go into high rise. But a lot of these developments, there's an opportunity to go higher. You just can't do it with wood because wood gets capped out. Why is that? It's a code. Uh, So 85 feet is the tallest wood building you could build. Five stories of wood is the tallest you can build. So 85 feet would be realistically a five-story wood building on a two-story steel or concrete podium. So that's a seven-story building altogether. Though if someone wants to sacrifice floor-to-ceiling heights, you might be able to squeeze an eight. Yeah. And so a lot of people, a lot of developers stop at that, at that number because in their mind, and they're correct, wood construction's cheaper. So... They just stop there because this is the tallest wood building I can build. But we take it a step further and say, okay, if by zoning you could build a 10-story building here, why wouldn't you look at it? Everybody thinks there's this big delta from wood to steel and concrete, which there is, but there's other options now. There's these new systems. uh, There's these light gauge systems that they're in between wood construction, steel and concrete as far as price per square foot. And if you could build an extra four floors, I mean, maybe maybe the numbers look better with that. So, like, these are the types of very rough conversations we can have. They're short conversations. This isn't uh, a lot of due diligence on our end. It's just letting everyone know what their options are. 
So let's talk about pricing for a second, because I think a lot of people that are starting to develop in the city, when they're developing a multi-unit building or underwriting a multi-unit building, the price of steel versus wood comes up a lot. And so can we talk about the price the price for steel for a basic maybe three-unit building that just has a moment frame or just some structural steel beams, and then the next step, which would probably be a podium type situation. And then the next step further, which would be an all steel construction building, like how percentage wise, how much does the price per square foot change between those levels? Let's just start at the bottom on all wood building, obviously with no steel is the cheapest you're going to get. Correct. There's sacrifices you might need to make to do that. Like if you didn't want to have windows up the entire front of the building, okay, you can do it all wood, but is whatever the steel was there, 15 grand worth having those windows. I think that's a different conversation than a podium build. I think a really interesting conversation is a lot of folks, the first thing they look at with regards to value engineering is how can I buy a less expensive tile? Where can I save money on my kitchen cabinets? But that's short-sighted. The first conversation that I'm going to think about is actually calling Jeremiah and Renz. And we're going to talk about things like, how's your building stacking? Are you willing to forego a couple window openings on the rear? Maybe we can get rid of a moment frame connection at the rear of the building. You have an awkward cantilever that your architect wants because it adds this six-inch recess. Well, you just changed the entire load as it transfers down the building to make some small architectural move. These are real things that we come up against all the time. Trade-offs for ceiling height is another interesting. I mean, talk about that. Everyone wants massive uh, open expanses or otherwise huge floor-to-ceilings, but maybe you can use a, a joist, which is... That's a great conversation, especially in these, like, um, I would say four to nine unit builds, like where you're trying to fit parking on a tight urban lot and you need to cantilever the second floor to get the square footage you need. And um, you can spend quite a bit in steel framing to make a cantilevered what ordinarily would be a wood structure. So your, your acquisition price and your budgeting should have that included in there. A lot of times, all the work we're doing together, most of the work we do, is in the city. Uh, we're not building houses with just a piece of property and you have 20 feet to your property line on each side. So there's so much that goes into figuring that out. You pay a lot for your structural steel, but you gained four parking spots for each one of your units. I mean, the value in that is a lot, right? For probably a small amount of structural steel. So we always try to talk with the developer and the architect to understand what are the goals of the project. And we know that having the most efficient structure doesn't always mean that's the right answer for the project. So you look at both sides. The other reason for some of the uh, items that you mentioned there, like the parking, that would be required under zoning. And we, we've talked about on the sh- uh, show here the importance of an architect and a zoning attorney working together during sort of the planning process. Where does the structural engineer uh, come into that? Do they? Do you typically see yourselves coming in after a design has been reached and, and things have kind of been approved? Or do you think it's more helpful to be part of that discussion earlier on? We're typically involved after that section with architects and attorneys that we do not have a relationship with. Once we've been working with a team like Mark or yourselves, they'll tend to bring us in earlier in those conversations because they realize it's a phone call or an email and and short work on our part to help provide value and prepare them for that purchase price. 
I would say the bigger the development, the earlier we should be involved. Especially if you've done a bunch of these, uh, you guys know what you're getting into for the most part. But on the bigger developments, I mean, it's it's short time on our end to give like a gut check and uh, just to look at all your options on the table. There's nothing worse than taking a project down the wrong path and having to, you know, you get a year into the project and we tell you there's a, maybe a better way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it might absolutely. as well as know it up front and plan for it. Absolutely. How many of your clients are architects reaching out to you directly versus developers reaching out to you directly? Say about 70, 30. Yeah, 70 architects. Regardless of who we're hired with in that um, relationship, we collaborate with the architect for the duration of, of the project. I mean, it's a question that we're faced with as developers a lot is the architect might ask, would you like me to hire this structural engineer and hold and carry that under my scope, or are you going to hire that direct? And so what are the pros and cons of each? Well, to me, the pro is probably I'm not going to pay a markup on the structural engineer's fee to my architect, who probably sh- who is entitled to that markup because they're managing it and taking a little more responsibility. So it's probably a question of um, how comfortable are you in that role of uh, being that center hub on the wheel? I would say more often than not, we're contracted regardless of who got us involved with the project, we end up being contracted under the architect as one of their sub-consultants. What would you say your split is for workload between in the city versus out of the city? I know, I know you mentioned that you don't typically come into play on sort of a single-family house, but do you take any work outside of the city? We take work outside of the city, but not single-family. An interesting div- like uh, market sector that's that's blossomed in the last year or yeah, two is true. the cultivation facilities. Um, <laughs> we have marijuana. We have about yes. we have about twelve <laughs> to fifteen of those developments. They're not in urban devi- environments. That's um, true. And then there's the retail structures and. Something you guys taught me that I think is really interesting. Everyone pictures structural engineering as a very black or white science, just totally numbers driven until someone asks you, how comfortable are you with a little bounce in your floor, a moderate or no bounce? And it's one of these gut check decisions as a developer. And will you expound on that? I The best example is we get people that say it all the time. Well, my, the IRC or IBC says I can span a two by 10 X amount of feet. Like, yeah, sure you can. It's safe. But if you're selling a high-end condo, do you really want whoever paid a thousand dollars a square feet, a square foot for this uh, condo to walk by their dining room table and all the glasses shake on the floor? So so where are you getting extra rigidity from for something like that? Are you building just it into stif- the subfloor or making the joists closer together or increasing the size of the joists? Yeah, Because there's so many triggers and variables to pull, I think, is Mark's point, right? There's a lot of ways to do it, yeah. Most commonly, we would just use a heavier, uh, instead of a, a dimensional 2x10, we would use a 9.5-inch I-joist. Or on the bigger buildings, we exclusively use open web trusses. Uh, we can run our mechanical through them and when you run the mechanical through them inherently they just need to be deeper and because of that you get a better performing floor let's actually talk about 
trusses because Ray really <laughs> wants to use trusses in like our next three unit build. Open web trusses. Because Ray. As opposed to engineered eye joists such that you can run the mechanicals correct, through yes. those open webs. No softening. You eliminate right. softening. But right. that's good and well until. You pay a premium for fire protection. And then you hit a, LV, a double LVL. <laughs> and now you need to soften anyway. Well, it depends on the layout. Yeah. But yes, you're. If you have a good structural engineer, they've mitigated <laughs> that, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Wait, what additional, what additional fire protection do you need with, with trusses? The open cavity needs to be sprinkled, I believe. Sprinkled, yeah. That's on, uh, at a oh, certain, so above the within 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 the floor. The floor. So yep. it's it's Just technically the interstitial space, I think. Interesting. Mm. But I believe that only kicks in at a certain size building. So for three units, I don't Go believe you will need. Have you designed three unit buildings with trusses? Uh, yeah, we, I definitely. We've, we've done them together. We've used them on all different sizes. Did we use them? Where did we use them? Five uh, eleven. Brownstone. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's more than three. There's really two types of open web trusses, or not two types. They're the same thing, but there's a pre-manufactured open web truss. Uh, one example is called Triforce. This truss comes with the diagonals are, they're just what they are. You buy it off the shelf, and then the end has a eye joist, a five-foot eye joist panel that you can trim. So you can cut it with a saw to get it to the length you need. And by doing this, these are off the shelf. Uh, you don't have much flexibility in it. It is what it is. Whereas what we use on the bigger builds are all custom uh, prefabricated trusses. We give the truss uh, manufacturer the loading and they design the trusses. They submit us the calcs and they're the ones you see with the press plates on the side. And those have a lot of flexibility. We can do, we can do a lot of things with those trusses. When I was studying for my construction supervisor license exam, I looked at all the um, chapters about trusses. And one of the main things is you can have a perfectly designed truss and then somebody screws it up in shipping. They don't lift it the right way. It completely falls apart. So I know that's obviously another thing to consider. So how do you, how do you ensure if you are providing some kind of construction control affidavits that how do you know if they've been messed up or not? Is there a way to tell? Is that a concern? That's not really a concern for us. Yeah. That ends up in the means and methods bucket. Uh, so that really falls on the contractor to make sure they get it right. And obviously we're looking to, when we do site visits during the construction administration phase, we're looking to see any any glaring issues with the structure. So we would definitely pick up on a joist that got damaged during shipping. They do get damaged and they either replace it or the manufacturer comes up with a fix. I think you're, what you're talking about is for these uh, one-story long-span trusses that the the picking by a crane is almost more important than the final condition because they're pretty flimsy when they get long. The trusses that we use for for these builds are the two by four cords and diagonals are on the flat. So the truss is actually three and a half inches wide, whereas these other trusses that you would use for a roof in a house are two bys on the the long dimension. So they're inch and a half wide. So they're really flimsy as you lift them up. We've gotten a lot of questions lately from other developers on like 
that's why I brought up the costs and how do you know if you need steel and just general yeah. high level shit about like underwriting a deal that needs steel. Like those guys that talked to us the other day about that Saratoga deal. Yeah, and they is. were like, oh, I didn't know I needed steel for this like 40 foot fucking span <laughs> in my garage. Yeah. I was like, well, what do you expect you were going to use? It's like that type of stuff. It's like, you know, people want to know how to evaluate deals and how much it's going to cost. And then like what, what, things they can do from a structural standpoint to help their builds. Let's get a little more high level. Let's kind of go into a few terms here. Um, let's play a game. We'll call let's it. Let's play a game. Help me not look stupid on uh-huh. a construction site. So some, you never look stupid on a construction site. The only bad question is not asking one. Is the one, right? Okay. There you go. Kate the one, the one you didn't ask. Yeah. So often we see things on a drawing or there's a big conversation on site and someone throws out an acronym. Um, just some things that come to my mind first is um, help our listeners understand what an LVL is. Laminated veneer lumber. It's engineered lumber. It's essentially a strong wood beam. Can I notch it or cut it anywhere? Call no. us. You can put holes through these, but... You can't just have free reign. Usually if you see an LVL, it's doing something more substantial than a normal wood joist. It's working. It's working. Yeah. Cool. What about PSL? More or less the same thing. It's just a different <laughs> way of making an engineered. Ah, uh, see? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> what about, they, they're different, but as far as you're concerned, it they're doesn't matter. Yeah. How about iJoist? It's a- uh, Engineered floor joist. An engineered floor joist. And yeah. can I drill through those? You can put holes through them. Can I cut the bottoms or the tops? No. No. Maybe. Most important part. <laughs> is that what you look Maybe for? Maybe at the end, yeah. but you'd have to reinforce the center of the web. So an eye joist is typically a, a two by four top and bottom that's connected by a piece of plywood in the middle. I mean, these are que- these are things that we're on the job site daily watching for and making sure. Well, and our subs are asking Right. Us. Can I, where can I put holes? Like typically right. the middle third, the first, like what, there's well, places I-Joyce, which are safer I-Joyce than also, others. Most iJoyce have, for, for electrical, they have little punch outs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and manufacturers have common specs that your contractors can refer to on how to reinforce for a said opening size. And they'll give you limitations for that. How about moment frames? A moment frame is a lateral force resisting system. So by lateral force, that means wind or seismic. So when you get to steel framing, it is uh, your two options are a braced frame or a moment frame. So a moment frame is something you would use to create a larger opening so that you don't have a diagonal member going through your usable space. Something that frustrated me early on in a design we did together was it's a freestanding three-family building, but there was an adjacent structure two and a half feet away and another one two and a half feet to the other side. So we had to design this Basically, like it was done in the middle of an open field in Indiana and or in Massachusetts. But because I guess the code would assume that at some point, either building on either side could be torn down. You can't assume shielding or anything from a building next to you. I know, but that would that would be really bad to go back. Your neighbor starts taking his boots like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Hey, uh, next term, um, hold downs. Mm. Frowned upon. (laughs) <laughs> what is Not by structural engineers. <laughs> <laughs> They're literally what they sound like. They are holding down your shear walls. So just think of a shear wall as the walls that are holding your building up for wind and seismic. It's another lateral force-resisting system. And if you start pushing on that wall, just 
think of it pushing a cup over. If you push hard enough, it's going to tip over. These are literally anchoring the ends of those walls to hold them down. Under what conditions? Under wind loads and seismic loads. So is that like a hurricane or is it just a typical hurricane? They're designed for hurricanes, yeah. So that is more at the foundation to first sill plate, right? You would typically use coil straps on the floors above. So you would track your shear wall from the top floor all the way down to the foundation. Often when the loads are light, you can use coil straps or you may have hold downs in your upper floors. Hurricane ties, as people call them, is that similar? Hurricane ties is a term used at uh, your roof rafters. It's like a rafter clip. Doing something similar? Kind of. It's for wind. It's just so the rafter doesn't get sucked off your roof in a windstorm. Wind loads will create uplift on your roof, which can be counterintuitive. But um, so you actually have uplift and the wind wants to pull your roof rafter off of the building. So those ties hold them down. Here's one. Cantilever. What is it? Cantilever. Yeah. Yeah, what is it? Okay. <laughs> that, would, that would be an example of going too loud into the microphone with a laugh. That is perfect. We just all had heart attacks there. I was about to describe a cantilever as a cantilever. <laughs> a cantilever would be a beam or like even an entire floor can cantilever over a bearing wall or column. So it would be like a floor joist extending um, over your front wall two feet to create more floor space on your second floor. And how far out can you typically go on a cantilever? We can achieve anything. It's a matter of economics. <laughs> anything? Really? <laughs> there's there's probably a realistic limit, but... Is it safe to say it's like a two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds inside the building, one-third out? That's good for like wood that. framing, yeah. Yeah. Steel's a little different. Steel, steel, you can go further. Cantilevers are expensive. The further the cantilever goes... It's not a linear number on how much. Would you say it's algorithmic? <laughs> no, what, 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 I look. I think it's logarithmic. logarithmic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> algorithmic. <laughs> Sorry, poking what fun at Mark there. To, you were saying we something. Cut we out. cut it out, yeah. but then uh, Mark, Mark. Oh, I was the, trying to explain we're, profits as as algorithmic oh, well. <laughs> instead of linear, but algorithmic. It's just not a word. Yeah. It's a word. Yeah. New term. Well, sinusoidal. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> All right. Here's here's a more nuanced one. Maybe requires a longer response, but site classification. For size, for soil? Yeah, like, so I'm acquiring uh, a site that I intend to demo the building, and I call you. One thing that you're going to tell me is, hey, Mark, be advised. There's a site classification of, and there's big cost impacts. We would recommend you get a geotech report. Once the deal becomes viable, do that. In Boston, I mean, the, the site conditions can change literally from site to site. The fill is all over the place here. So uh, we've had two sites down. Somebody is just digging down four feet and putting footings in and two uh, properties the other way, they're putting piles in. How do you guys work with the geotech engineer? Because it's it's very important. It happens early in the process. Uh, you provide the geotechnical engineer certain things and he's going to give you other assumptions. It's more them giving us uh, information. We give them loads to give them an idea of what we're building. the actual estimated weight of the building. Yeah. I would say as you get into larger developments, it's more common that the geotechnical report has already been done. It seems like people in midsize or larger developments are are used to having that done, so they know that it's worth it to to get that process moving before the deal is done. And um, so they give us that soil class act and bearing bearing pressure. Speaking of loads, let's talk about live... (laughs) 
I that knew, is I, not being cut. No, I knew. I knew the second I said it where it was going. The transition Cheer. sentence. <laughs> Speaking of loads. So here's something that I think a lot of people want to do because it happens a lot. You know, I want to open the wall up between my living room and my kitchen to make it open concept. How do I know it's a bearing wall? Do I need to get someone like you guys involved? Can I just go and ask my GC to do it? Can I just go to my lumber supplier and ask them to size an LVL? Like, how, what are the steps for that? Just get a sawzall, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. just two sawzalls. See what happens. <laughs> Live a little. It depends just on the kidding. building. A, a single family, a lumberyard can usually do it. What about just a three family? What's the first rule of thumb to determine if it is a bearing wall? You look at the direction of the joists above, whether that's the floor or the roof. If the floor joists are running perpendicular to the wall, then it's likely a bearing wall. If they're running parallel to the wall, it's likely a non-load bearing wall. If they're running parallel, it's almost definitely not a bearing wall. If they're running perpendicular, it could be. The critical conversation there is the IRC versus the IBC. So if you're working in single-family dwellings, that's the IRC where you don't really need engineers. You can use the lumber yard. The contractor can follow the IRC building code. Which is? What does that stand for? It's the residential building code. Okay. And then the international building code is what we have to follow for commercial development. So as you get to multi-unit, three-family, four-family, nine-unit, or really any building, commercial, retail, we have to follow the IBC, which is the International Building Code. Have you ever been into a building and you're like, holy shit, I need to get out of yes, here? Yes, absolutely. And we got out. <laughs> <laughs> and it got torn down, actually. Really? Because of that? Or did they want to save it or was it going to be that torn was down our, anyway? That was our recommendation. Uh, you're going to spend more. Uh, oftentimes, if a building's in rough shape like that, you're going to spend more money trying to bring this back to life than to just build something new, get everything you want in the development. And that's what happened in this case. We've done some very interesting rehab jobs. One in particular, we were looking at putting nine stories on top of a nine-story building. And to do this, we had to investigate all the columns of the building below to make sure they could support building above. So this was a concrete building. So one of the things we need to determine is what's the rebar in the columns. We x-rayed the columns to find the rebar, but it it's sometimes inconclusive on what they find. So we asked the contractor to chip out uh, the perimeter of the column so we could see the rebar. And this was still a nine-story building. And I think we're on the, the second floor. He sends me a picture of what they did he chipped all the way through the column. There was no concrete left, just six pieces of rebar passing through. And he said, oh my he God. says, is this what you need? Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, uh, and what God. was your recommendation? <laughs> said, sure, this immediately, patch it immediately. Thank God nothing happened. That building actually ended up getting torn down and we built an 18-story building on the site. But those are the moments where... That was just one column. He didn't do it to all of them. Just one column, yeah. <laughs> That's cutting the branch you're standing on, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but the fact that that didn't process in his mind what this is doing was, man. And that's a contractor on a potentially 18-story yeah, building. Well, I mean, yeah, it was probably, I don't know what happened, but it happened. And um, I mean, that's why we try to be extremely clear on what we intend. <laughs> All right, here's a plywood subfloor. Renz, I got a question for you. 
Someone described, you know, so you guys were both at a larger structural firm for the first years out of your career. And it's always tough to make that decision of when, when to make the jump. It's never super, super comfortable. Someone described it to me once. They said, it's like trying to get off a boat and onto a dock. The, do- the boat's never going to be tied up real nice and tight, but you got to be close enough that you feel like confident enough that you can make the leap. What was that decision like for you guys? That decision for me, I, I would say, probably came fortunately easier than most. Growing up, most of the people that um, I was around, my father, um, some of my friends' father, they all ran independent subcontracting companies. So they created their success and wealth by hard work and running their own firm. So when I kind of joined the working world, that's really the only way I knew how to make it. So um, as an engineer, we have to get an, an engineering degree and we have to have work for four years and pass a series of tests to get our license. So I always had the goal of going on my own after I got my engineering license. And a thing that made that uh, an easy process for me is my family business is Renz Welding uh, and Fabricating. So I was able to go out and help grow the steel business while growing an engineering presence. At that time, uh, Jeremiah and I were talking about launching our own business. So the steel company really gave us an opportunity to to start the engineering business, I'd almost say risk-free. We were able to maintain day jobs. Jeremiah left our um, old engineering company and joined us on the steel company to help grow. And that's during that first nine months, we really started building out our processes for scale. It's actually a cool thing about working with you guys. It's a tangent, but uh, if you do do the structural design and then we hire Renz to do the steel, there's very little finger pointing. We get blamed for everything. <laughs> we always get blamed for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Dan and Ray, what was that to say when you guys jumped from Fidelity? Yeah. Um, you jumped off the boat. It took five years. Yeah. Were you doing both at the same time? Yeah. We did both at the same time for five years. So I think that's the smart way to do it. it like you, you want to put in 100% effort at your current job, and you also want to put in 100% eff- effort after hours to get your feet on the ground and get moving. Yeah. We also wanted to make sure that we had enough of a cushion and, you know, to be able to pull that trigger. So if, you know, for some reason, we something didn't work out, or we had enough. We wanted to make sure we had enough in the pipeline and enough money in the bank. Enough in the bank, yeah. yeah. Good, good. Um, you know, some income from our rental properties. Was there an aha moment when H and O? You felt like, wow, this is really this is awesome. Nine months in, I would say about nine months <laughs> in was our aha moment. So Land a big job in that first nine months. Yeah, nine Jeffries, right? <laughs> <laughs> My three family. <laughs> and uh, over that nine months, we kind of we spoke about a little earlier was that pocket in the mid rise development, and that there was really a need for our service. Um, majority of the people we work with complain about engineering consultants not being responsive, not being too bu- uh, being too busy. To, uh, to answer RFIs or, or review shop drawings or hit deadlines. So we really took that as kind of a message that our focus needs to be on the architect and on the developer and what are their true needs. We look at the structural design, although we're technically sound, we kind of view that as expected or the commodity in the market. So our sole focus is building a process and encouraging our team and giving them the resources to make sure that we serve our clients well and create a better experience for them. It's a great answer. I mean, I think it's really tough because a lot of folks will maybe think that they can just take the low number if you're a developer evaluating structural engineering bids. But like 
there is additional value that a good structural firm can bring. And if you think that you can save money by picking different tiles, you should, you're really short-sighted. There's, there's a ton of value by working with the right guys early because a lot of folks will design to their structural engineering um, insurance or their stamp rather than actually crunch numbers. And I'm sure you have stories about that. And I think that goes with the, the saying, fast, cheaper, accurate, pick any two, right? So if, if somebody doesn't carry enough fee to service the project that's the way it should be serviced, they have to cut down something. So typically that's going to be cut out in time, which results in over-design. They're going to do stuff that's safe and the shortcut on the engineering side of things. Or in general, just making sure if you're making that jump from single family to multifamily, you know, and you necessarily have, you've never had a structural line item in your budget, you know, be prepared because, you know, you, you have to yeah. when you're making that jump. The bigger, obviously the bigger the development, the bigger role we play. And I think especially where the economy is right now and how busy everything has been, you have people that built single families are now building multifamilies. People that are building multifamilies are building 30-unit buildings. And we have, I guess, the advantage of that we've actually come the other way a little bit. We've we've seen uh, our, our background is in big high-rise buildings. So uh, we've been able to fill this, this mid-rise void relatively easily or competently, I should say. Whereas coming up the other way, you're always still learning what the right way is to do it on the next level. And uh, I would say it's been a huge advantage for us to to have the perspective of a bigger development in mind on how you approach everything that we do. Have you built the business? I know you said you've built the business from the ground up to scale. Have you also built the business in a way to sustain a potential downturn in the market? Absolutely. And um, I think to kind of elaborate on that growth. Lots side, of grow facilities. Lots <laughs> of grow facilities. <laughs> It'll never go away. <laughs> I think part of building an organization is you've got to, it might be cliche, but you need to work on your business. So a perspective we have is we look at any business as really 20% unique and 80% the same. So we look at our, we're constantly working on all eight areas of our business. So when we look at an organization, sorry to repeat myself, there's eight sectors that you want to focus on. Planning, leadership, sales, marketing, people, operations, finance, and legal. And if you want to work and build those uniformly so that they're all at the same level, and what you're doing by, by focusing on that process is you're minimizing risk and increasing the value of your business. I think a, a lot of things entrepreneurs fail to see is that they might have strengths in two or three of those areas. And when things aren't going wrong, they try to improve at the two or three areas that they're strong at, which makes them more imbalanced and increases their risk and won't help them grow. That typically is a challenging hurdle for companies to overcome. Similarly, I, I would say a lot of entrepreneurs ask us, like, uh, is it easy to make the decision to hire the next team team member, the next employee? How do, how do you have the mindset to grow? Is that a hard decision every time? And when you have a three to five year or 10 year picture of what your firm looks like, those decisions become a necessity. If you're only worrying about today or tomorrow or next week, it's tough to have the vision and make decisions with the future in mind. So we would urge everybody to take the time to think about where they're trying to go and why they're going there. And then it makes all those smaller decisions in the long run much easier to make. So if all of a sudden your workload goes down by 50%? Never happens. 
A lot of golf. <laughs> a, lot a lot of, of golf. golf. Lot so of honestly, golf. in guys, our perspective, and you guys are- No, it's, I mean, we're, we're, we're in the same boat. We're yeah. th- we have to think about the yeah. next downturn. If we can't do a project for two years, yeah. you know? A, and similarly, it's, you have to think about the next project, even though your head is exploding with what's on your plate today. Yeah. You're always working yourself Keeping out stuff of a in job the pipeline. in this business. Yeah, it's the same for us. I think we're fortunate to be at a size and in the Boston market. Our, the Boston market right now is- extremely hot. And with the mayor's commitment to the number of units we're going to be building to 2030, it's going to be a pretty solid market. Even in a recession, I would say we're all small and nimble enough that we can still capitalize and grow through a down market. And it might be a good opportunity to grab talent opportunities at a reduced cost. So if you're paying attention to your cash flow and and your your debt ratio, you're not going to be in a tight spot. And that's the time to buy. We're going to get stuff at much better rates. I'm sure you guys feel you're buying property right now at 110% 110% actual street value. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. I can't wait for the seller's pants to be on fire when I'm going to buy. But I know that that can cut the other way too. When I'm the seller and I'm trying to turn, you know, move condos. <laughs> it also goes to how long have we been saying, how many years have we been saying, is there going to be a downturn in the economy? A, a so, long time. Yeah. So if you took a back seat three years ago, you would have just missed out on, but I mean, you've done both your developments in three years, right? Both. I, you're making me sound like such a big. <laughs> you've done all two developments. <laughs> Sorry, you've done your eight developments. Yeah, we worked with yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> we just take the perspective of we do what we can to take advantage of what we have in front of us and put ourselves in the best position possible for when and if that time comes. And we are trying to. Uh, I mean, the dispensaries and cultivation centers are an interesting sector. I'm not sure how they'll perform through. Uh, we probably don't have market data for the last. Oh, it's no there. different than any of the other sin stocks, you know, cigarettes, beer, and whatever. They don't go away during a downturn. Yeah. If anything, they Well, increase. they might go away with the next president. <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> you never know. You know. Federal right. government you never comes know. in. Okay, what was the scratch fir- that? <laughs> <laughs> what was the first position or role that you hired? Well, who was in, Who's we're quote all unquote employee? We're one. all engineers. Uh, Justin, you probably have all worked with Justin. Um, he was our first hire, kind of a uh, interesting he was a candidate, un- unique candidate, but I He's absolutely one of the best decisions we ever made. He's yeah. un- amazingly like he has great emotional intelligence, he's self aware, he's super smart. He can he can pick up anything new and, and he gets it the next day. When I said he's a great listener, I meant of real estate addicts. So <laughs> I thought that is like what you guys do more so than any other discipline, in my opinion, is code driven. You guys are experts on the code. Is or that, solutions is, driven too. Is that fair because to say? That's a true statement. But so from like a VE standpoint, I assume is where you're kind of taking sure. that. Uh, the VE usually lies in making changes to the architectural design that will impact structure. So we s- typically can't solely make a change for structure, but if you tweak, you know, move give this wall here, column. move that wall, yeah, yeah, give us another column, then that's a structural or VE. A- add a bearing wall somewhere or something. Yeah. But there's nothing like uh, changing the finishes. Uh, you know, it's it's an easy thing to quantify. Typically, these are and and that's why the upfront approach on these larger developments. Like, let's figure out what is the best the best solution for your project and get it right right off the bat. Well, that's probably the biggest takeaway from this entire episode. I would say is get 
your structural guys involved early enough in the process because if you you can come up with a beautiful looking building and you get it all go through the process, you get it all approved, you go through 10 months and then you start the structural process and you're like, oh shit, I have to spend $100,000 on steel now, but yeah. I don't have that in the budget. Well, no. your open concept floor plans could be gorgeous, but there could be very logical places where you could add a column and it won't adversely affect what you're trying to achieve for programming. And you could save a lot of dough on the structure of the building and go from steel to wood or otherwise, you know, make some big, big savings. Absolutely. And you guys do it like, honestly, I'll send these guys schematic drawings, basically cartoons from my architect, and they'll just take a magic marker or blue beam and just mark up like, think about a twenty going no more than twenty foot span here. If if you can add a column in this spot and 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 those types of and it's a collaborative process. We can't do this in a box. Uh, if we built the building, it probably wouldn't sell very well. Yeah. It would just be a s nice box in the windows. <laughs> yeah. Structurally amazing, <laughs> architecturally horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but no, those examples where you have a building that jets out six inches beyond the first floor, you know, that might look cool as an architectural move, but that changes the bearing line or all have, the way and, down. And have massive yeah. picture windows all the way up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, yeah. where can you have windows? You know, it's always free to take the window down. That's another trick that these guys, and we've talked about, it's like, if you want to make a window bigger, you can make it taller, no cost, wider more difficult. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tough in Boston too. Uh, we have these sites that are, they're long and skinny, right? And that skinny direction is always your street frontage where you want to put all the windows, and that's where we want to put wall, and that's where your moment frame comes from. There you yeah, go. Yeah. That wow. ties in a lot with, like, the feasibility study conversation, and when you get into larger, more complicated, like, it might be a hundred grand on a smaller job. That number can be much higher, million dollars plus on, like, these large-scale developments. The narrow side, it ties in perfectly. We have a 27-story feasibility study that we just did on a 60-foot-wide lot that has implications going through the city. All developers know how taxing the process is about going through the, uh, the approval process with the city. So you want to make sure the development you're proposing is actually structurally viable with the floor layout and the square footage that you're proposing. Will you guys share the story about um, someone called you in to review this? So Back Bay Project, gorgeous building the structural steel numbers were coming in three times what was initially budgeted by the general contractor. And the owner just said, something doesn't smell right. He reached out to you guys, and you did sort of a peer review. And I'll let you pick it up. Thanks, Jeremy. I, mean, I, lo <laughs> I, love, I love what the other engineer said to you as well. Yeah, You have to get to that. <laughs> I would say the other engineer took liberties and didn't use today's technology to design some of the, the steel beams in the structure we had. Uh, unfortunately, there was heavy steel beams that would be used in um like as columns in a commercial project spanning like what a three two by tens would do in this wood building so we were able to uh help consult and uh fortunately everyone on the project really handled it with a lot of professionalism yeah and uh we were able to save some yeah. money there i'm sure that's sensitive do you see actually do you see a lot of engineers over engineering buildings these days I There's would say mix. that guy did. So in that building, <laughs> I love what he said to you. Didn't he say, "Well, do you want your floors to bounce?" Yeah, I thought this did. was a and high-end like, condo building. You, are, yeah. you want bouncy floors? No problem. Are you landing aircraft carriers in your living room? So this beam wasn't going to. I think to bunch. add to that is you'll see. Is it an aircraft ca carrier in the oh, ocean? Well, no, I meant yeah. I guess I'm. <laughs> damn it. So, so we'll see. We need to wrap this up soon. <laughs> <laughs> Give Mark's me another. Beer. <laughs> Dan, to answer your question, we'll see significant 
over-design in some areas, and then total negligence on the same project. So that one, in for, for instance, had these heavy steel beams, twelve by W12 by 65, which is a 65-pound-per-foot beam. But then the entire attachment of the diaphragm to the exterior wood wall was basically with, like, nails at, like, <laughs> two feet on center, like, it's not actually grabbing the So wall. basically you see shit that's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, more often than not, on the more complex the building gets, when we get into steel and concrete, that's where we see the over-design. You need to know what you're doing when it comes to that. And uh, that's where the backgrounds that we have comes in. You know, I have a random question. I see a lot of buildings going up with just all, I'm assuming, rebar-reinforced concrete, and everything's just the buildings where it's like three or four stories at a time. You'll see the yellow around the perimeter of it, and I assume that's to protect the concrete while it's curing. How long will those, what's the lifespan of those buildings, right? How long will they last? A concrete building. We have these brick buildings that are still standing around now. I wouldn't worry about lifespan on those. The, you usually see the concrete core jumping up ahead of these buildings, right? You see the stair and elevator cores going up. Uh, more often than not in Boston, we then build with steel and concrete floors around that. And the concrete core can go up. Uh, I mean, they can do two floor uh, two days per floor on the concrete core. So you can have your 30-story core topped out in two months, and then they just wait for the rest of the building to come up behind it. And they use the slip form, and uh, it's an efficient way of doing things. The yellow cage that you see is going up with the concrete guys, and it's acting as uh, protection as well, like fall arrest. So, I mean, because concrete has to cure. So is there some kind of additive that they're using? Because obviously... If you're doing two, what do you say, two floors a day or two yeah, floors the, a but the concrete will set, they'll use a special mix that sets up quickly, but you don't need the full strength until, I mean, this is designed to support a 30-story building. So in two days, it's just supporting itself. So that's a non-issue. They'll break cylinders to make sure they got to some, uh, whatever PSI they need. Sure. And some of this concrete, like the stuff will pour on Smaller jobs, 3,000, 4,000 PSI. Some of the concrete on these towers is 12,000 PSI. They're not going to Home Depot and buying no. bags of concrete no, to no. pour these Well, I just know shots. as we put our foundation walls in, you know, in some cases we've been told don't backfill yet until, you you know, it's cured a little bit. So I, yeah. I'm just curious, you know, these things go up so fast. A 12,000 PSI mix, think of how quickly it's going to get to 4,000 PSI, which is what you're probably pouring in, in your foundation wall. Uh, it's a different... It's getting to that strength in 24, 48 hours. And, they're, and nice. they, they do that intentionally as well, just for construction schedule. How much more is that concrete? Is it like price, double? Price-wise? Price-wise. Concrete core, you know, say like 1200 bucks a cubic yard with rebar. That's a good rule right. of thumb. Not so cheap. if I want to speed up my site work, that's probably not a good idea on our end. If we just put concrete cores into a three-story building, you wouldn't make your money back. <laughs> Hey guys, I, I think one kind of closing thought for me at least is, you know, you can hire the cheapest, lowest proposal from a structural guy or an architect or design professional, but particularly if you're GCing things yourself or you're the developer, you know, it can be very short-sighted or penny-wise, pound-foolish. I think you want guys that are creative, collaborative, uh, that aren't just going to take the plans that are handed to them as a given. They'll look at it and offer constructive feedback. And uh, so it's been a pleasure working with you guys. and. If folks wanted to find you on their new website, or how, how does everyone get in touch with you? www.hazoneal.com, even though we have rebranded as HO, the, web, <laughs> the website is what the website is. <laughs>
Nike only has one logo. You guys got to be consistent. No way. We'll Nike, redo that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you guys already have, you guys can stamp your own drawings or anything, but if you need a notary, <laughs> he's your guy. Here That's we true. go. So you can find us at hazoneal.com and on Instagram at hazoneal. And uh, it's been a pleasure working with you guys. Thanks for having us on the show. This has been great. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out. Awesome. All right. See you guys. <laughs>